Our reading tonight is from Micah 5, which is on page 933 of the Church Bibles. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathra, through, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who, has been, who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod, with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our lands and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you, and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you and your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. In Luke 18, verse 18, a rich man comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man obviously didn't know the answer to his question, and he didn't like the reply he got. Now, I don't know whether... The idea of eternal life is a burning question in your mind this evening, or whether really you'd just like to make some sense out of what happens or the purpose of your life on this planet is. But I think many of the answers are present in Micah 5, and we're going to look at that, and it's central really to the gospel message. I have to set a timer or I will go on too long. So it's central to the gospel message. I'm not going to preach fully on the passage. I'm going to use 
the role of Micah in being a pivotal point between the Old Testament going to the New Testament. And I'm going to try and be quite ambitious and try and show how the message of the Old Testament follows very logically and smoothly into the New Testament. And it's all part of God's plan and it's all crystal clear. And hopefully some more clarity will come from that. Let us pray. Lord, when we read and meditate on your word, we cannot help but be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, open our eyes to the great blessings of your good news, and let our lives be turned upside down by your grace. Amen. That was that. Okay, Micah. You can't hear Micah chapter 5 without being transported to some Christmas time long ago on Christmas Eve, hearing carols from kings. And this passage is traditionally the fourth reading um, in the nine lessons and carols. It can be replaced by an Isaiah passage, but traditionally it is number four. And I really think there's no better time to look at this passage being in this uh, time of Advent and seeing from the candles with the third Sunday now in Advent. It's a traditional time in our Christian calendar to look at the second coming of Christ. However, in modern days, we tend to focus a lot more on the nativity as we approach Advent than we do about the second coming of Christ. And I do feel, certainly in society today, that for many people in our world, Christ never grows up from this child in the nativity story. This passage forms uh, one of 365 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. I was a little bit surprised that there were this many, um, uh, but I looked through all 365 and... Yes, I can see that they were messianic in their origins. <clears throat> I do wonder whether the person who compiled this list just stopped because it happens to be the number of days in a year and it has some significance. <clears throat> but I think that is an overwhelming number of prophecies that we get in the Old Testament, all pointing to the coming of Christ, all pointing to this one event. And uh, Peter the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, said this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Even angels long to look into these things. So it's all part of, uh, of prophecies and the pointing and clear indication of uh, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. They're scattered throughout the Old Testament. I put a red line on this diagram so we can see clearly where Micah falls. Uh, and Micah is just slightly earlier, perhaps, than Isaiah. Um, and therefore, its order in the Bible is a little bit confusing. Um, but most of the messianic prophecies occur after or in Isaiah and beyond, around 60%. Um, and so they are concentrated in these latter days of the Old Testament. Micah, I think, is special 
in that it's one of roughly eight prophecies, when I read the prophecies, which are much, much clearer than the others. And it's one of the few that you can see with foresight rather than hindsight. A lot of the prophecies, that 365, yes, you can interpret them in hindsight after seeing what happened, but in foresight, they can be a bit difficult. And that's because very often they have a double meaning, and so they can be much more complicated. Now, Jesus himself had to explain to the two uh, people on the road to Emmaus about what the Old Testament actually said to him. So Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So it was difficult for the early church to understand and see the significance until hindsight was available to them and they saw what Jesus had done in his life and then could look back at the Old Testament and see how that was fulfilled. And you must remember, uh, because it's very easy to forget, they didn't have a Bible sitting in the the pew in front of them. They couldn't refer to it, and we couldn't go on to Google and search the Bible for every single word uh, that you were particularly interested in. They had someone who would preach to them. They would have to rely on their memory. So it must be much more difficult for people in uh, Jesus' time when he was on earth to actually look at these uh, messianic prophecies and understand them. It's also interesting and probably uh, perfectly logical. Paul uses these passages here that he reasoned from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He used these prophecies as part of his evangelism. We could use them in our evangelism today, but I think they're less useful to us because our audience wouldn't be a Jewish audience and it wouldn't be an audience that's very familiar with the Old Testament. But they have their role, Uh, nevertheless, still, um, certainly for encouragement, I certainly felt absolutely overwhelmed that there were so many of these messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. So here in Micah, here is the the, the full passage you've just had read, Uh, Bethlehem, we're told that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, we're told that uh, this town is pretty insignificant. And if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you would realize that is quite true even today. It's a small town. That the ruler will have a kingly lineage going back years. And that God is going to abandon Israel until somebody, I assume is special, is going to have a child. In fact, it reads very much like the Isaiah passages, uh, giving the same uh, pointers in terms of the prophecies. And we know from the gospel accounts that King Herod instantly consults his uh, scribes and um, uh, the scribes in order to find out where the Messiah will uh, be born when the three Magi visit him and they tell him it's going to be in Bethlehem. So we have that first pointer. And in many respects with Micah, I almost felt it could almost have been the last book of the Old Testament as many of the prophecies have been uh, declared by that point. Um, Obviously, there were a few more to go. I think there's about uh, 200 still to go if you follow the timeline. Uh, But in terms of the abandonment and the prophesying of someone to have a child and a uh, Messiah coming, and it's going to be in Bethlehem, um, we have a very clear message coming from Micah. 
I wanted to particularly look at the abandonment section of the uh, uh, prophecy here. It's in uh, verse 3. Um, And the scale of the abandonment of Israel really isn't that clear in the Bible. Um, And I think the best way to illustrate it came from a little account I read about the Roman general Pompey when he invaded Jerusalem in 63 BC. And he demanded the privilege of entering the Holy of Holies in the second temple. And when he did, he came out and he said, I don't know what the fuss is all about. All I saw was an empty room. The fact is, Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant. All the way through the Old Testament, that has been the sign that God has been with them. And to this day, nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. It may be hidden, it may have dis- but it certainly has disappeared from Jewish culture. And that means, or certainly it looks to me to be a definite sign of an abandonment. God has left Israel And that's that abandonment. So, for 1,300 years, we've had the Ark of the Covenant with um, Israel, and it gets lost in that 400 years between Malachi and Mark's Gospel, assuming that Mark's Gospel was the first uh, one written. And the next time we hear of the Ark of the Covenant um, is in um, Revelation, and John describes seeing the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Revelation. Revelation 11:19. After Micah, we have one, two, three, four, five, five major uh, prophecies to come. Uh, a lot more are present in Zechariah, but that's one of the major ones that we're all familiar with. Jesus riding on a colt, uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and so on. So there are more prophecies to come. So when we come to Malachi in the Old Testament, God has said all he needs to say to Israel. And there's going to be a period of 400 years where nothing is going to be added to the canon of Scripture for the Jews. So what we have now is the Jeremiah prophecy of what's going to happen is we're going to get a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that new covenant begins... uh, Probably with the birth of Christ, it's probably the, the best mark, although the message, the good news, the start of the preaching of that covenant is when Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. So what is the good news and how does it relate to the Old Testament? And that's what I want to go on next. And to understand that, we need to understand the law because our rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to obtain or attain eternal life. So let's have a little look at the law. Well, it was probably the Mosaic law. There's 613 uh, commandments, 10 of them. Uh, We're all very familiar with still today. Um, All of the others, uh, quite a number of them, we we don't uh, um, or wouldn't be familiar with them. We've had... Uh, God giving these commandments to Israel, and then we've had this repetitive obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience. And that's been the story all the way through the Old Testament, all the way from, we could really start with uh, Genesis onwards, but this uh, repeated obedience and disobedience. So Israel really has struggled with being able to keep to the commandments. So they can't obey 
God's commandments. Now, in terms of the law, with the coming of the new covenant, it's not removing the law. So the law isn't being abolished, but it's being fulfilled. And so what we have is the fulfillment of the law. And if you look at all of the five covenants, I believe, are in the Old Testament, it depends what you define as a covenant. What's happening with the new covenant is all of them are going to be fulfilled by Christ um, in his good news message. This is what the Jews were promised if they obeyed the law when it was given to Moses. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes, his rules, you should live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are entering to take possession of it. Obviously, the suggestion is disobedience is going to lead to uh, you not living and multiplying and that you will not be blessed and you will lose your land. And the Old Testament is this repeated story of Israel turning to God, going away from God, turning back to God, leaving God. But you'll notice in this there is no mention of eternal life as linked to the law. So how could you get saved in the Old Testament? Uh, what was this rich man thinking of when he was asking about eternal life in the first place? Where had he got the idea that eternal life uh, existed? Well, first of all, we know that the law um, is righteous. So Psalm 19 says, The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. And before that, it also says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So the, Lord, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. But the problem is, as is summarized here in Ecclesiastes, indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So the issue is, we can't actually obey the law fully. And, oops, sorry, it was there already. And in Romans, the Apostle Paul says, there's no one who will be justified in God's sight, or his sight is God's sight, by works of the law. For the law merely brings awareness of sins. And that tells us what the purpose of the law was for the Jews, for Israel, was to tell them what sin actually was. It was honoring to God, and it was an opportunity for Israel to show um, its obedience. So in the Old Testament, what's happening with the Jews is they've begun to sever. They've parted God's law from faith in God. And they're not depending on God's spirit anymore. They are using the commandments as almost a job description. So you have to do this, you are a Jew, you do this. It's not about God anymore, it's not about faith in God, it's about just obeying a law. So if you look at the prospects of eternal life in the Old Testament, we find there are 23,000 verses in the Old Testament, and less than 20 speak about eternal life, and I would have said that very few of them actually are very clear about that as well. So eternal life isn't a big issue. But what does it say? Well, we've learned from Christ's teaching that the statement, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, actually means those three people are still alive to God. 
Um, and Jesus uses that as a contradiction of the Sadducees when they are trying to claim there is no resurrection. So that statement tells us straight away that by saying, I am the God of Abraham, says that Abraham is still alive. So there is support for an afterlife. We get support that the wicked uh, are without hope and should not live forever. The suggestion is then that people who are not wicked may have the potential to live forever. And there are various other passages. I could do Job 19, Isaiah 26, but probably the clearest for the idea of eternal life is here in Daniel. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel portrays it as being a book, and uh, John picks up that image in Revelation about being a book of life, and that salvation, people who are saved, are mentioned in this book of life. So how do we uh, gain this writing, get our names into this book of life? Well, using Psalm uh, 73, it seems to need God's guidance. We need to be trusting in God and we need to be guided by God. But the clearest two passages come from Habakkuk and Genesis. And I'll read those two. I didn't put them on a slide. Um, Behold, this is Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. To be right with God, you need to live by faith. Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Again, righteousness comes from believing in God, trusting, having faith, having God's Holy Spirit, using God's guidance. So faith in God is the source of righteousness in the Old Testament, not the law. The rich young ruler was looking for a law, some rules to obey, but in fact, it's faith he needed to look at. And by the time we get to the first century, there's obviously confusion uh, about what is eternal life. Some groups don't seem to believe in it. So the rich young ruler asks how must I, what I must do to, obtain, to uh, attain eternal life. And the immediate question is, if I was to ask you, I think almost every person in here would be able to tell me what a world of a difference it is in the New Testament era to the Old Testament. There was confusion. Nobody seemed to know what God's plan was for their lives, certainly beyond their lifespan. Whereas here now, we are much clearer. Why was this man not able to do so? Well, even his probably one of the largest religious groups at the time, the Sadducees, were teaching that there was no resurrection. And so it um, <clears throat> obviously wasn't clear if even your teachers are not telling you. The Pharisees did believe in uh, an afterlife, but the Sadducees did not. So, and we also see with the disciples in Mark that they are confused when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich person to be saved. Now, why would they think a rich person could be saved? Uh, I don't see what their logic was now, but at the time they thought someone who's blessed by God must be someone who's going to heaven, and a rich person was obviously blessed by God. So, this new covenant that's coming up, Micah is pointing to it here in Micah, Micah chapter 5, and it's good news. 
And it's good news that this rich man needed to hear. The good news is, taking Jesus' words, the kingdom of God is close. And then taking Paul's words, that we need to repent of our sinful ways and believe that Jesus died in in our place for our sins and therefore our sins can be forgiven. It's our faith in that act. Paul summarized it very neatly in Galatians. Know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. We should never be fooled by thinking by doing certain things we're going to stand better in God's books. We won't. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by the faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. (coughs) Sorry. John 3.16 For this very reason God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Ephesians 2 verse 8, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. In our house group, when we've been studying Micah, the first two chapters, three chapters, um, I turned up late to one of the groups, and I remember Colin saying, Is it going to get better? Are we going to get some positive news in Micah? And I can't think of anything more positive than what we hear in Micah 5, what it's pointing to, this pivotal point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so it's easy to get discouraged by sin. And perhaps we go through these repeated cycles like Israel. We sin, we go back to God, we sin, we go back to God. And and we do deserve God's punishment. But... The Bible teaches us that salvation can't be earned. It's by grace that we've been saved. Um, And and that's the way it has been all the way through the Old Testament as well. It's grace that saves people, not works. And I felt certainly in preparing for Micah 5 that I got a glimpse of God's grace here. And I think it's one of the most precious things one can get when you're a Christian getting a glimpse of God's grace, a fresh glimpse, something new that you had never seen. I didn't know the extent to which these prophecies were present in the Old Testament. And seeing the beauty of the faith in the Old Testament marrying up beautifully with faith in Christ in the New Testament. And also the imagery of this abandonment of Israel pointing to that God is going to have a new covenant with his people. So, uh, to encourage us of this Advent season, I thought one thing all of us could do is just meditate on the Christmas stories, on God's grace to us through Christ, and see whether we could each get a, a fresh glimpse to pick us up in our faith and encourage us. Because I often feel that if we understood just a fraction of the cost, and we sang that in one of the songs, the cost of what uh, Christ It cost Christ to to die on that cross. If we just understood a tiny fraction of it, our selfishness would melt away and it would turn our lives upside down. I'll close with a prayer. Lord, I echo the prayer I started with this evening. Open our eyes to the great blessings of your good news. 
and let our lives be turned upside down by your grace. Amen.